You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another riveting episode of Felony Inc. Podcast. That was our brand new intro you just heard, courtesy of Fingers Production, uh, Westbred Diamond, and also big shout out to Alon for uh, doing a great job on the intro. Um, today we got an incredible show for you today. Um, first of all, as always, I'm joined by my beloved co-host Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty great, Dick. It's a gorgeous day and there's a lot to be grateful for amid all of the craziness of the world. Still hanging on to what's working. Yeah, you and me both. And I'm really excited today because we have personally one of my favorite guests of all time on Phone the Ink, which is none other than the very established Eugene Brown, founder, CEO of Big Chair Chess Club, also author of the book From Ponds to Kings, also subject of the movie Life of a King, uh, starring Cuba Gooding Jr. Eugene, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Everything is 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 great. Great day. I'm like, man, it's, it's just it's just a good day to be here. <laughs> <laughs> We're so excited to have you back, Eugene. Your story is just so inspiring, and we're really tickled to get into some different facets of it. See what we can see, what we can get out of you today. Okay, let's roll. All right. Well, Eugene, since the last interview, uh, me and Meg have both had the opportunity to watch the movie uh, "Life of a King." Um, I've recently had the opportunity of finishing the book uh, "From Ponds to Kings," Uh, so I have like a litany of different questions for you. But before we get into all that, I just kind of want to touch base on what we. Finish the last interview talking about, which was your play from Ponds to Kings. Uh, do you have any updates about that, or how's that been going? Well, uh, that's that's uh, that's going to be on hold for um, I got another six another six months before they they're even considering opening. Yeah. So everything is coming in incrementally, you know, six months. So it just looks like uh, you know uh, next year sometime probably the way things are going, but. You know, it's it's ready. It, as a matter of fact, I've been doing some. It's, it's giving me some time. I've been adding some pieces to it, and you know, really, really kind of fine tuning it. Yeah, it's kind of the silver lining with this whole thing is kind of be able to take a step back and take a look at what we were about to put out and kind of just polish it up a little bit at times. Um, that's really the only positive you can look at right now with everything you've been put on hold till next year. I mean, my entire career is the same way. I know Meg feels the same way about that. Um, so right now, with the with the play on hold, uh, with everything else kind of up in the air, what are you? Uh, what have you been spending your time doing? Oh, actually, now I'm I'm recording. I'm doing a video of, of my program, and um, and it should be. Uh, I I was trying to beat the school year, but uh, I had a thought uh, 
that it might be best to do it for the fall because I know how when the time goes back and, 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 and you know, even if the homeschoolers, are, they, you know, they're doing the homeschool, they probably start settling in around the fall. So that'll give me time to really, you know, release it. It's going to be a beginner's program. Uh, I'm going to have a coloring book in it, you know, to show, you know, how the, how the pieces move, how, you know, the name of the pieces and, you know, my program all the way, you know, from, well, there's three parts to a chess game, the opening, the middle and the end. So the beginners, the beginners chess program starts with the opening game, identifying the opening game. So that's that's what I'll be doing. When you identify the opening game, you should be after taking this course, you should be ready to understand the game and go into your middle game. You know, and that's where, well, the concept that I use of life and chess is the fact that in our opening game, how does it relate to our everyday life compared to the chessboard? Okay, and the opening on a chessboard, when when you ask the chess player, say, well, what's the opening all about? And you hear repetitively that the opening is about developing your pieces, you know, getting all your pieces off of the rows and, and having, you know, all your workers, having your army, like in a, in a soldier, having everybody, having all your forces out, developing your people. How does that relate to your life? Well, in the opening games of our life, that's what we do. We develop our skills so that when we get ready to go into our middle game, we understand how to develop with tactics and strategy. And, and we start understanding how important it is to use that concept to get to your end game, to get to your 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 end game, you know. So the three stages to a chess game is the opening, middle, and end. The three stages to our life is the opening, the middle, and the end. The advantage, and I think one of the advantages that I wrote about in that book is the fact that when you can start seeing your end game while you're in the opening, you have a lot, you have a great advantage. And uh, I went to school with kids uh, when I moved from the, uh, the third well neighborhood that I came up in. When, when, when we moved, when I, I started going to school with some kids, and, and I know directly that the influence it had, because there was a guy, David Corn, his father ran the drugstore. His, his father was the pharmacist of the drugstore. Every weekend, he was working on the cash register, and years later, he ended up taking over the drugstore. He had a pharmacist's license. So he saw his end game years before, you know. So those are some, those are some, that's the advantage that I, that great chess players have. They, they see their end game long before most amateurs will, you know. So those, those are that I think, you know, that parallel alone has been able to develop uh, I, it, it has developed a point of reference in, in my life as far as in my developing property, you know, and, and, you know, especially at these times, you know, am I using this time, you know, since the opening of when everything starts, you know, so I, I, I can say, well, you know, <laughs> we still in, we're still in the identifying the problem because I use the same concept, even on the chessboard, you know, when you're looking at a situation, the, sec the scientific investigation is to identify the problem, come up with the solution, 
and what's the plan program of action. So I knew when you asked me about the play, you know, when will it be? I said, hey, you know, they had me really identify the problem yet. We're not even in the solution stage. So it's it's going to be a while. So I've been able to use that back to what I'm just saying about having a point of reference, you know, to be able to identify something. Because when I, you know, when I really understand it, I'm able to look at it in the, in the same stages, the opening, and that's where we at with this whole thing. We're in the opening. We haven't even got to the middle game yet. And yeah, I'm the exact way. same way. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you essentially just have to wait for the dust to settle, and until that happens, you can't have a clear vision of what's happening. There's nothing yeah. you can do. Yeah. Yeah. The time. Well, like he was saying, it's like the scientific method. You're doing the data gathering in that opening part. You're getting ready. You're building a foundation, and you're gathering all the data, right, so that you can make informed decisions. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so, uh, so that's how I'm the the the, uh, the name of the program. Uh, it's going to be from from pawns to kings and queens, you know. So I've added the name of the chess from pawn. It's going to be a not only a chess program but a character building program. So, so is I, it a I, combination I, of different media? Are you doing videos and PDFs, or what does it look like? Well, it's going to look like uh, I'm working with an organization called Wush, Wush no Active ActiveNetwork.com. And and what they do, they market it. They, they will market it, you know. So I'm I'm doing all of the the video. I'm doing the videos now. So when we market it, your program will be able to purchase it because all of the whole beginners program will be there. So what I'm what what just to add, you know, caveat that just to add to it, I'll be probably doing a live session. Or being able to play, you know, some of the, you know, uh, uh, the, the participants, and, and just to make it ongoing, and to be able to carry them into the the middle, and to be able to carry them into uh, uh, an immediate from from the beginners, to be able to transition them, you know, maybe six months from now into a, an immediate uh, a chess players group, but. The back page to the whole thing is I, I'm, I'm just desirous of, of training young kids to do what I'm doing, you know, to be able for them to use the peer-to-peer -peer training and certify them under my program. So that's, that's you know, that's of something that I'm looking at. I mean, we're in experimental stages of just about everything. So every, everything is, is worth trying. You know, that makes sense. So that's that's just been some of the things I've been just looking at as far as, you know, being creative. Now, the first uh, now in your book, the first quote that you have was from uh, Maya Angelou, which said children's talent to endure stems from their ignorance of alternatives. Um, obviously, this is a very important quote to you. What, what specifically does that mean to you? Well, uh. That's our number one. That's our number one enemy, you know, ignorance. Yeah, you know, and and ignorance is really just the fact that that just like now, can you see my hand? Can you see my hand? Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> the reason why I'm saying this is because the ignorant part of it is is you don't know what's behind it. 
And the only thing that, that really separates the intellect from the ignorance is the fact that it takes someone to turn it around for you to see. Now you're no longer ignorant because now you see it. So a lot of times we take ignorance as being less less intelligent. But if if even if a teacher, it, she may have a kid in there that's really bright, but her job is to learn how to turn that around or for her to come around. So that's that thing. That's that statement alone. You know, it it is is an interesting statement. But you know, that's just you know some of the things that I've been able to 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 be enlightened with the fact of you know ignorance of what I always thought it was compared to what it really is is the fact that no light has been shined in that dark corner. Yeah, it's beautifully put, man. Um, so one of the things I want to talk to you about that kind of touched me or was close to me and uh, I resonated with in the book was in 1962, um, at age 17, you became the youngest licensed barber in Washington, D.C. Um, not, not, not shortly after that, uh, you were wrongly accused of a crime that you didn't commit. You went to trial. You were found not guilty. Um, but, but during that whole process, um, the new car that you got, you, you weren't able to work, make payments on the car was repossessed. Uh, you became depressed. You weren't interested in women or hanging out or kind of any of the activities that you're into. And you went through all that and then you were successful in trial. Um, I had a similar situation myself. And I think a lot of people, uh, the mentality is, uh, oh, you should just be happy that you beat the trial. You should just be happy that you're not in jail, you know, like, but the reality of it is there's, it's a ripple effect that has a, you know, a lot of, causes a lot of psychological and, uh, just material damage to a person's life, especially when you were young and you, it sounded like you really had everything going for yourself at that time and it kind of derailed the entire operation. Um, can you touch on that a little bit more? Yes. Uh, if, if, and I think right in there, and you brought me to it, it kind of got me because I know if I hadn't had a praying mother at that yeah. time, she was the one that brought me out of that. And I think I put it in there. She must have had, she, she must have spent, I don't know, countless dollars on, those candles that you buy, you know, with the Jesus on them, those uh, she she bought she 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 must have bought one of those every every week every time they burn up. And she said, as long as the light shines, as long as this candle light shine, you got hope. And I'm gonna make sure it shine. Don't you ever give up hope, you know? So this was these were some of the things that really, you know, really comforted me during that period, you know. And, and I came, you know, my grandfather was a preacher on both sides, you know. So, you know, the word was prevalent in our home. You know, we, we lived by it. But like I said, I was the only one out of our family that got away from that. You know, those, those were the teachers that I got away from. So for me to get back to where I'm at today, this is what happened when I really understood what rehabilitation was about, you know, because... I came from a two-parent family. I was actually habilitated. I had when I got away from well, it's like the prodigal son, you know, when he when he you know went away from it, and and when I came back to consciousness, you know, when I came back to 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 what I was raised under, you know, that was the rehabilitation because, you know, I, I had I had a point of reference at a real early age as to. The normalcy of, of, you know, seeing my parents go to work every day, 
seeing them talk about retirement, you know, going on family vacation, you know, that type of life was in going to church together, you know, or that type of that wholesome life was instilled in me. I, I drifted away from it because, uh, you know, the, the, the hustlers in the community, they caught my eye, you know, and I would rather be down at some at some of my friends house that it was a house full of hustlers and 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 to see guys with big hats on you know eating eating out of pots while they stand over the stove you know talking and i thought that was fascinating i come home and and a table was set up you know i thought this was square you know like you know so i i just see how delicate a kid's imagination can be without without the proper information you know so it, it all boils down to m m the, the misinformation but the boomerang effect of it was that you know it, it was a part of my life it, and it was a part of the subculture so when we speak about a subculture we say we talk about something that's that's below the ordinary culture you know you, when you say subculture you know we were already in a culture of of you know our our race our identity who we were that was already one culture you know we were already deprived you know socially but to for me to live in a subculture you know of hustlers and this this that was a whole nother ethnic you know and i was the the attention span that they said i didn't have in school it, i i you know i could have got an a on my report card you know from in the pool rooms and, and places, those Desmo crypts that I stayed in, you know, I was getting good grades. I was getting good grades there, and 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 you know, so. But I think we were speaking er, uh, earlier before the for the cast how <clears throat> how fortunate I've been, you know, to be seventy four years old to be able to go back and be able to see those experiences. And to see how you know having the ability to articulate, you know those those events, and chronologically put them in order to see where did this thing, where did this, where did this mindset start at, you know, and and when you look at it, I, I myself had read the book, you know, again, and one of the questions that came to me is, how in the world did you get out of that mess, you know? And, and that's when I know that, you know, it, 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 a power greater than myself, you know, had carried me through, you know, especially when I'm, I'm, I'm in a prison in a state that I never, I didn't know a soul, you know, and, and, and was able to, you know, was able to really survive, you know, and get an understanding. Uh, and, and so many other episodes that, 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 that I could just put my finger on, you know, I, I can just just stand on them and, and and just you know ask myself you know how in the world so the answer to that how ha has really been getting coming clear and, and it's been resonating as a reinforcement for a time like this. I'm like Winston Churchill. I, this could this could very well be my finest hour. I was just thinking the same thing, uh, Eugene. I was I wanted to ask you: Do you ever think that that period of time, when you're doing the hustle, and when you're in prison, is in some way that setup, that data gathering of the opening game 
for what your middle or end game is that's happening later in your life, that you've gone and gathered all this data about what is happening in uh, the justice system, what's happening to young kids, and what you're able to bring to the world now is a product of what you learned then. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and what happens is the fact that, you know, some some kids, you know, and I've, and I've, I've reached that point myself once where I, I had been beaten down so low. I was staying in a shelter once and I was beaten. I had got to the point where just getting back up didn't even cross my mind. And this is and, and like this, this is seemed like where everything started turning around. You know, everything started turning around. And, and uh, but not having the proper information, and I think it's been the information because of you know, even even though I I, I wanted to give up, but it was always something that or someone or or, or encouraging word or it was always something that kind of woke me back up. And this is what a lot of these kids are missing. You know, I know that, you know, for me to hear a kid that's 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 in, in a class and he's he's been a problem everywhere else and to see his life transition on the chessboard, you know, that's that that has been, you know, that that has been a behavioral change for me to understand that, you know, Everybody don't learn the same way, you know. And, and when when a kid, you know, have a, a person that they can look up to, I know I've been into a classroom, a disruptive classroom, of being able to set the chessboard out around, and I've just seen kids just flock around. I ain't have to open my mouth, you know. So. Eugene, another quote that you had in your book was, uh, it's okay for a child to be afraid of the dark, but it's unacceptable for a man or woman to be afraid of the light. Uh, <laughs> could you elaborate a little bit on what that means to you? Well, well, yeah. I'll give you a perfect example of that statement where we can, uh, we can, we can unwrap it from the point of, here's a guy that might be, uh, a baller, or they call him a hustler. Or here's a guy that uh, that that has uh, has fun, has money, you know, and and he has a lot of money, but he's trapped in a subculture that he that he don't know how to get out of. So being trapped in a subculture with the funds to to really live any type of, I mean, really, really live, he's, he's afraid of the light. He's, he's, he's afraid to venture outside of, you know, that culture, you know, sometimes too much light will blind him, you know, and you can have perfect, you can have perfect 2020 eyesight. You, you know, being blind is not the worst thing. You can have 2020 eyesight, but without vision. So what, what good is to have 2020 eyesight with no vision? So the being afraid of the light is is a lot of times is they don't want to look further than their eyes can see. It you know it just blinds them. 
And those are some of the things that I had to really transcend. You know, I had to, I always draw the example of when I used to speak in prison, you got guys in there. I mean, they, I mean, they, I mean, you could put them on a magazine cover, you know, I mean, with the bodybuilding and the time that they spent, you know, and if you go to their personal setting, they have some of the most beautiful women in the world on their locker posted up. And, you know, I mean, I mean, that they glorified, I mean, you know, these are the women that, you know, I'm, you know, they engage with, you know, during this time, that magazine. But the point I'm making is when they come home, they will not address any woman of that magnitude because of their low self-esteem. So a lot of times you find yourself unworthy and internally unworthy of you you'll say you'll say that you want these things, but you won't make an attempt to get what you imagine. And I think that's a sin. What do you yes. think it takes for someone to be able to break out of that? Because there's real psychology behind that where yeah, you know, it, people it, it, get comfortable and feel safe with what they know. I love that analogy of the darkness and the light. It's like if your eyes get adjusted to the dark, it's very difficult to walk out into the light. It's too much, right? And folks tend to, to develop their identity and their comfort zone with what they know, maybe what they know as kids or or what the people around them are doing and what it takes to actually break out of that and really make big changes is a special something, something, you know, do you have a sense well, of, of what that is? Well, yeah. Well, you know, the same thing that's what, what, what well, I call it uh, hypnosis. And I think they did analogy with a frog uh, and they, they put the frog in, in, in a scalding high water. He jumped right out of it. Right. And then they tried another experiment where they laid him in there and gradually, gradually turned the heat up. And he laid there and laid there till he passed, till he died. And and this is what this is this is some of the things that you're finding out that's happening once you get, you know, once you get desensitized to to a lot of stuff. And and you forget that you have the capacity. You know, they, I mean, when when you when you lose the capacity to to dream, to have visions of how do you even even now, you know, people saying, well, you know, what does the future look like? What what do, what does your mind? What does my mind look like? You know, I can't I can't go on with with you know what the future. I have to go on with what 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 I what I what I'm thinking of how it's going to be, and that's how it's going to be. <laughs> you know, so I can't let you know. I can't let the narrative dictate to me, but that's that's a great question that you ask, and and it comes like you said, it comes from self examination. You know, look at look at the last ten relationships that you and and, and what you're seeing is, you know, who, whoever you choose is a reflection of your thinking. So I, I so those are some of the things that I had to really really look at myself, you know. And, and and to be able to and, and not only that you know even even the choices that I make with with the food with the books I read you know I mean those are some of the things so because I'm always trying to add value to myself another chest 
uh, quotation that got me into that thinking was, even on the chessboard, if you see a good move, at least look around and see if there's a better one. So we're always trying to, I'm always trying to put myself in a better position, you know, a position, uh, and it's not all the time a selfish position, it's a position where I might be able, where I can help someone, you know, and and so and on the chessboard, if nothing else is happening, if nothing else is happening, I think I mentioned this last time, I think in, in, in a swimming event or when they clock somebody on the clock, they might win by one-tenth of, you know, just that one-tenth of a second, you know, that, but on the chessboard, if you can just make a incremental, just just a little incremental move where everything might be just that tight, where you can just maintain the position and at least have, have you know, our first baseman be on first base, look like he's trying to go to steal the second, at least, at least have that momentum going, you know, you might not, you know, at least have that. And, and this is what happens to a lot of guys I see come home. They don't want to go to second base. They don't want to go to third base. You know, they get comfortable. They hit a they hit a double. You know, they comfortable, you know. I mean they, you know, you're on the football team, you're on the football hundred yard line and you get to the twenty yard line and you think you won the game. You know, so a lot of it do have have to do with complacency, being comfortable where where you're at. And the penitentiary breeds comfortability. <laughs> Absolutely. It does. And sort of breeds an environment where, you know, uh, there aren't that many opportunities. So it almost limits folks' um, muscles and capacity for doing yeah. a lot yeah. of extra stuff. It really yeah. is quite a damaging yeah. experience to spend a lot of time in, in prison. We need to break for an ad here and uh, pay some bills, and then we'll come right back and talk some more. How does that sound? That'd be great. Awesome. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Fill Name Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Eugene Brown, founder and CEO of Big Chair Chess Club, author and subject of the movie Life of the King. Uh, Eugene, we were just talking about kind of uh, the way I took it was like a lot of people in prison create vision boards. And it's one thing to have a vision board, maybe have like a beautiful woman, a model, a mansion, a nice car. But it's a whole nother story to implement that. And you had a quote in your book. It said success is preparation before manifestation. Um, so that's exactly what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I kind of wanted to shift gears for a second and talk about was uh, 
We discussed something in the book, uh, you discussed something in the book called the hood disease. Uh, Harvard researchers were doing research on, uh, on a group of people that grew up in the hood and noticed that 30% of them suffer from a significant uh, PTSD syndrome, which they labeled hood disease. Um, I was doing some research after I read that, and it, uh, typically 20% of soldiers returning from war um, come back with PTSD. So that means that people that are just living here in America in these particular hoods and uh, this, you know, dangerous areas are suffering from a higher PTS, PTSD rate than those. They're actually going to physical war. Um, my thing that I wanted to kind of bring to you about this is I feel like those numbers are a lot lower than in actuality. You know, I feel like 30% is substantially low considering the amount of trauma and things that people experience just growing up in, you know, impoverished areas. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I definitely think it, uh, that that is very underrated because I know that I've yeah. seen uh, in Washington, D.C., I'll show you how uh, unilaterally you can look at that anytime you got a high school that that wasn't able to have a football team because of you know the the the, the, the attendance you know so you're seeing how widespread you know because that used to be your ticket one time you know uh with sports in the school but the hood disease i when i first heard it i thought it was a slang you know i thought it was just a you know i thought it was jogging until yeah. i actually understood that the cdc you know have came up with with this research so I, I equated it back to when i was in social adjustment class david i would i would have been suffering from the hood disease and, and like you say the guys that come back from the service they get a chance to really get away from it so with the center of disease control has been able to their research was stemmed around the fact that these kids were, were affected by 24 7 and it caused a learning impediment because hey, you can imagine, you know, what's going on in their houses and, you know, what they have to go through and, you know, what their family, what you're, what they're exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you got, you got alcoholism, drug addiction, you got, you got so much going on in these houses and these kids today, they, they, they see more, they've seen more than some of their teachers have. I'm talking about elementary school teachers kids have seen more and been exposed to more than some of their teachers have. So, you you know, so the hood disease is, is you know, a, a, a couple with, you know, hunger, you know, it's just, it's just so much that you have to really, you know, go past when you start peeling that onion, just the fact to see where, you know, you know, what, what's really going on, you know, so. And so I'm looking at the same thing now as to, you know, they're talking about homeschooling these kids, some of the school having to go back, kids having to go back to public school, some of the teachers they haven't found it now, you know, some of the teachers that's willing to stand up in front of the kids, the homeschooler kids, that, you know, uh, not to take anything derogatory, but some of, some of their parents need homeschooling themselves, you know, so there's no one there capable, you know, so you're gonna find even, even a uh, 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 further, a uh, further drifting back of of what's going on now as far as in the educational. So that pipeline to prison, 
that I guess that that's really start to you start seeing that picking up, I guess, you know, because that's where that's where the statistics come from. And that's kind of what I was touching on is like you would see like people suffering from the hood disease. They might their house might be a target with their mom in it for a drive by shooting and they have to go to school the next day or go to work yeah, or play yeah, sports. Yeah and still continue on a normal basis. In a suburban household, if their house got shot up, 40 years later, they, the person might still be in therapy about that one incident, you know? So- I believe it, yeah, yeah. yeah I know, yeah, I, mentioned, what, I mentioned in, 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 in the book, that I wrote in the book, when my brother had mental illness, how, how, how that was a big transition in my life, you know? And I, I should have, you know, well, they should have afforded us therapy because back in the fifties, you know, when mental illness, that was a that was a stigma, and and especially in black community, you know, to see to see your brother like walking the street and very incoherent, and you know, people saying he went crazy, you know, you know, that was that was that was a lot for our family, you know. So uh, I know I know how everybody in our family took it after that, you know, to see him go to one of the largest mental hospitals on the East Coast, St. Elizabeth Hospital, where John Hinckley was, you know, to go to see him caught it off, see him come back home, you know, highly medic medicated, you know, almost got to lead him around, you know. And I ended up, well, I ended up taking care of him. But, you know, one of the things in the later years uh, when I was taking care of him, this is about maybe like 10 years ago before he passed, I asked him, I said, Anthony, uh, <clears throat> well, some of the things you wish you had a did when you, when you was coming up, because he was the valedictorian of, of his junior high school class. Now, I mentioned that in the book. And uh, this is when I knew how devastating mental illness was. And his response, I said, Anthony, is it something that you wish you had a did, you know, when you was coming up, man, you was the valedictorian of, of your junior high school class. And he's, his response was, I wish I hadn't never got sick. And that was when I saw where he could see the separate. It was something beyond what he could handle. You know, that's when I knew, you know, and, and, and you know, well, I've been to some peer support classes and find out how, <clears throat> how rampant, it, you know, it, it is, you know, through the depression and how people deal with it. But at that time, that was that was very devastating to our whole family. And it took me years to really, you know, uh, to deal with it. I, I know how I took it into relationships with females later on in my life, you know, because of what happened to him as a direct result of what had happened to him. Because his, his, his girlfriend, that she was the she was the the Valley Victoria of the school. They was like king and queen of the junior high school. And and his best friend, when he went to summer camp and came home, he found out that his best friend was having a relationship with her. And then a couple of, with the fact of my father being uh, <laughs> uh, alcoholic and, you know, that type of behavior that it, that was present, man, he's, he just couldn't, he just snapped. You know, I remember it, man. I remember And he was... After my brother, the one that's the boxer, the one I had a brother that was went to the Olympic, you know, he didn't go to the Olympic, he went to the trial. 
you know, Moto. He had, Moto, yeah, he had a big reputation. After, after I was no longer, you know, looking up to him, Anthony became my, I mean, him and I was, you know, was real close because he was the one that was really articulate. Uh, man, you see everything, he, he could sit there. He was left-handed while we ate. He would look across the table on the brown bags and, and just drew, he could draw everybody across from him. You know, like a funny paper, just like the funny paper. And that's how, that's how, you know, how, and when he snapped, man, it was just, you know, it was just, uh, it, was, it was heartbroken. And everybody knows smooth, smooth, what they was calling him Marino, smooth Marino. I mean, everywhere he went, that's, it, that's he was a class act. So, you know, uh, so I, I can imagine, you know, some of the things that, that these kids have to deal with. I was with a guy that worked in a summer program and, and, and you know he he had privilege to a lot of the records of the kids, and he he said, man, you you don't know what these kids go through. He read a few of them to me, you know, like, and and I was able to really really take it just even a, a layer further. So I think that's where the compassion comes, you know, when I see these kids in these programs, and, and why I make you know even a chess program that I have in High Point, North Carolina, <clears throat> I made sure that I don't I. The program, I think I was just the third year, and out of three years, and one day a week, I think I missed two days in three years, and I was there. I was like wheels on meals. You know, every 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 Wednesday I came there, I made sure that they had. You know, I made it a point, and 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 along with you know being able to get them to sit down, we would sit down as a family. No one gonna eat. We gonna sit here as a family. Somebody say grace. You know, you know, and we would I just, you know, forming that 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 bond as far as that unity that they may have missed, started giving them that point of reference, you know, that they may have missed that, hey, we're a family, we're a chess team, you know, we help each other, you know. So just the way we we, we have to look out for each other. So it, it eventually comes back because <clears throat> some of these kids when they move away, I've seen the fact that they have bonded in these programs and they'd be caught somewhere else and it'd be someone that know them, you know, from they say, hey man, leave him alone. I know him and, and they'd be friend, you know, because they sat there eye to eye and they had played, you know, and they formed that 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 mental bond from from trying to beat each other on the chessboard. That's that's a friendship, you know. So uh it, those are the, the type of things I've seen that that uh I know work. And, uh, you know, they just one caring parent away or one caring adult away from th their life being changed. So the prison guys, I mean, you know, when you when you look at prison as a rite of passage and and I, I had it as a occupational hazard, you know, when you start when you start embellishing that type of attitude where, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, a, a meromorphe, what is it? Well, this is the best thing that could happen. You know, when you when you actually leave getting locked up is the best thing that could happen. It's it's I think I wrote in a book where my mother told me once that uh I I was going back and forth to prison, back and forth to prison. And uh, she asked me, she said, You find something that you like. And I was very offended. She said, normal people just don't keep going back to jail like that. 
And it just took years for me to understand that statement, you know, and, and it just makes so much sense. But, you know, I think that's the damage of hearing a lot of these jail stories from these guys coming home, you know, they glorify in prison, you know. And I think on the other side of the tracks, you, you know, people glorify, you know, college experiences and, you know, a better way of life. So what do what, what, what you, you know, so those are, uh, and I always encourage guys that's coming home, don't tell them, don't glorify prison as some of your best days, you know. Don't, don't, you know, make it so that no one it wouldn't even believe that you were ever in prison. So that's that's when you're able to transcend. They, when they ask you how long have you been locked up, if you can't tra transcend that, you know you you're just becoming your own jailer. So you can jail <laughs> like I got a thing now where where uh, I'm my own jailer. You know why? Because uh, I'm missing my four o'clock count. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all remember that. It's yeah. uh, very few days go by that I don't think no, about no, that if no, I look no, at the no, clock no, at four. Yeah, if anybody called me, they, they like I got friends that call me. They say, "What's up, man?" I said, "Oh yeah." I said, "Oh, it's I'm getting ready to go in for the four o'clock count." <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I don't, yeah. I don't want to mess the count up. <laughs> so Eugene, um, in your book, there's something very unique, and that is that your son Marco actually wrote some of those chapters and uh, we found that really very cool and we'd love to hear a little bit more about how that came about and um, you know what what motivated you to have Marco write some of the some of the book well well the the theme of the, the book was the illustration of intergenerational incarceration and how it often occurs in the urban hood subculture, and and we just uh, and and, I, and I, I, our family and myself being a procuring cause of being able to see how it actually, you know, how the where, where it was actually spawned from, you know, uh, from myself when when I met his Marco's mother. Who was who was a relatively well for the street vernacular a square girl, and for her to, to see her life change around because of the influence that I had over her, you know, not directly but indirectly for her wanting to be a part of what I was about, you know, her her whole life change, and for for her, you know, as a result of that lifestyle, you know, she changed her lifestyle, and and then our son ended up living because after her and I went our separate ways, she ended up with a guy that was, you know, that was really into that urban hood subculture. Matter of fact, they were living in public housing. And, you know, the whole family was a hustling unit that, you know, that she took up with. And so Marco was actually raised during that time. But the separation was the fact that my, my mother, took a part in raising him at a young age. So uh so that 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 the book came from, you know, he actually he told me his experiences and I saw how, you know, from my experience, I saw how the urban hood subculture, how 
his his mother ended up going to going to Arlington, West Virginia federal prison. I was in jail. Then he ended up going to jail now. And even now I have a grandson that's that's in and out of prison. You know, so we look back at, at you know, we look back, I'm all the way, this, this started back in the 60s when I met her. And just to see how that, that mindset, that lifestyle has opened door after door after door for, for this type of behavior, you know, to to exist. It had it had to be a starting place. And where did it start from? So we're seeing that now. I've seen in prison where the mother, the father, the sister, I mean, everybody was locked up, you know. And it became at first, you know, it, it was it was startling. But when, when I saw it over and over and over, I could almost hear the same story. You know, I could almost hear the same story. I could almost hear the same story all the way back to sharecropping. That's what I was just thinking, because, you know, the system, the justice system, we all, well, we all know, you know, is the replacement for slavery. It's an incredibly racist, incredibly classist system and uh, is put into place for many reasons, including keeping the votes white, right? Um, so certainly this kind of, it's, it's working. It's a, it's a system that actually does what it was intended to do. It's a, it's a really, pro, it's a problematic system. How do you see going about combating and changing that story of intergenerational incarceration? Well, well, uh, that's that's a that's a that's a humongous question. It's humongous, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've one got some things, thoughts, I tell you one of the things that I was thinking, you know, really, really to be a vanguard into this whole prison reform. Okay, now I'm a law-abiding citizen. Okay, so I'm a law-abiding citizen to the fact that in the Thirteenth Amendment, they told me that that slavery should be abolished. If, you know, you know the whole piece. Yeah, haven't been convicted of a crime. So they're telling me, and, and according to the law, after I committed, they're telling me that they can enslave me, right? Right. Since they have enslaved me, and now I'm home, can I get reparation for that? <laughs> I'm, think, I'm thinking that, that I need to be filing since you said you enslaved me. In the 13th Amendment, you said that, and I'm a law-abiding citizen, and you should be too, because you put it here. And the yeah, the system is certainly. I need to I need to file for reparation for for these prison for these manufacturers for these corporations. You know, so I said, I, I don't let me start nothing. You know. I mean, because I mean, you know, I get the skinhead. I'll get all of us on this thing. I, I think there's a case for it. I mean, we yeah, certainly I mean, the more we peel back the layers and the mainstream, you know, population can have a real honest look about what's happening in the system versus just you commit a crime by personal choice and go to jail and see it as more of a systemic issue where there are entire populations of people who don't have the same options and choices as other populations. 
And like you were saying earlier, going to jail, doing crime, street hustle, there's something that is pretty glorified about that for folks that are otherwise feeling powerless. And that's real, you know, to have an attraction to that. I was attracted to that lifestyle. I thought that that, like you were saying, your, your set table versus the guy eating with the pot over the stove. I had that feeling. Those folks doing whatever they were doing over there, I had a draw to that. And, you know, I like to think now that I'm able to use that experience to be a much better person, a wiser person, and a person who does better in life. Um, but, you know, not everyone gets there. And so it's troubling. And that intergenerational situation, it's, it's, it's real. It's actually out there. It's happening. And it's hard to know how to stop it. How are your kids doing now? Oh, they're doing quite well. You know, they're, they're doing quite well. Uh, everything is just, you know, one day at a time. Uh, my daughter, she just uh, moved into an, uh, uh, to another house. She's a landlord. You know, she, she's doing dental. You know, she's doing a, she's a dental uh, hygienist. And my son, he, well, he's, he's doing his barber thing. Matter of fact, my grandson is about to take he, he has a master's barber's license, but now he's about to uh, do, now I have two grandsons, so he's about to do his his, his, his license for to become the, uh, a barber instructor. You know, so he, they, my, my son is a barber instructor, so now he he, 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 he trained him at to be a barber. So now he's, he's getting his instructor's license. So, you know, I'm just seeing how, how that positivity has been has been handed down. So those are some of the answers to the, that seed that's been sitting on the windowsill, you know, started putting it into some ground that that's, you know, making it grow. So and, and it all comes and it all comes back. It started with me and it's, it, the turnaround has been for them to see what I've been doing, you know. And, and, and it ain't what, what I've been saying is what I've been doing, you know. You know, I, I don't try to teach them anything. I, I tell them, say, I'll show you how to do it behind what I'm doing. And, and I ain't going to give up. I know your kids had a difficult time. Are they proud of you now? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I yes. bet I, they are. That's a good feeling. You know, I know my daughter after... Cause I got, I, you know, like when she, the, when I was, I sold real estate for fifteen years, and um, she had a four unit apartment. And everything. But now she, you know, she talks and, you know, she she started really seeing the entrepreneurial part of her life just expanding to the point that, you know, she just couldn't even envision way back then. Now and she's saying, oh, this is what he was trying to do, you know. So she said, well, what what. What, what can I do for you? I got, so I said, no, baby. I said, the only thing you can do for me is for me to see you happy. So that's, that's, that's all you can do. That's all I need. That just puts a big smile on my face. I think that what you're doing right now, Eugene, to be able to be, uh, you know, the image of what being comfortable and sound and solid and inspired looks like is how you can inspire your kids and grandkids and the folks that you deal with to be the same. We love having you as a guest here on Felony Inc. And hopefully we can have you back again sometime. I look forward to it. It's been a true pleasure once again. And um, I hope you have a great day and good luck with your new program you're rolling out. We are big supporters over here.
So, I'll send, send it when I when I unwrap it. I'll send you a package of it. Oh, we would love it. We would love that. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, we really enjoy that. Um, so we'll go ahead and wrap up now. And um, thanks everybody for tuning in. Don't forget every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time on StartupRadioNetwork.com. Okay, take care. Bye, Eugene. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.